And Lord, as we now come to Your Word and we prepare our own hearts to receive Your Word, we pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. We pray that You would use it to nourish us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to convict us. Lord, You know what we need from Your Word. And we believe that Your Word accomplishes Your work. We believe that Your Word is perfect, inerrant, sufficient, that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, O Lord, that we may be equipped for every good work. We pray that by the power of the Spirit working within us, we would have understanding that we would be not only hearers of your word, but that we would be doers as well to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you need a Bible, uh, we do have Bibles out on the counter in the foyer that are available for you. If you need a Bible, please feel free to, uh, to grab one of those. We'd love for you to even take, uh, take it home if you don't have one. Uh, but today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is such an important chapter. This is such an important chapter, and the reason I say that is because the Christian life, being in God's family, is not easy. You know, Jesus talked about how the, the, the road that leads to destruction, that's the road that's easy, that's the road that's broad, that's the road that's traveled by many, but the, the road that we travel, it's not easy. In fact, it's, it's downright difficult. The grade is steep, and it's not just a smooth path. It's kind of like if you've ever uh, run in mud, uh, if you've ever run up a hill uh, that's muddy. It is so much work, and there may even be times in which it gets so tiring and so dreary and so difficult that you end up just sliding back. It happens to the strongest of Christians. We call it backsliding. And if you've been paying attention to what has happened in 1 Samuel up to this point, you know that Israel is a picture of just how easy it is to backslide. It happens in no time. Within a generation, people who saw God do these amazing works, next chapter, they're asking for a mortal king to replace God as their king. Backsliding is a reality. And if you haven't experienced it yet, there's a chance that you will. There's a chance that you will. And so if you do, you need to be equipped with an understanding of how you get your way back to God. And that's really what this chapter is all about. How to come back to God when you have backslidden. It's been said that, quote, in addition to other graces a good man ought to pray for is the grace to resign his office 
when his work is done, end quote. Now, you can probably think of athletes uh, to whom that applies. You think of athletes, some of them will retire kind of at the, at the height of their career, right? They'll, they'll win a championship, and they'll realize that, you know, time is catching up with them, that their, their bodies are, are breaking down, and so they'll retire as soon as they have won a championship. But you can probably also think of athletes who win a championship, and they, they've got to know that time is catching up with them, and yet they sign a new contract, and they continue playing into the years when their bodies can't do what they used to do. And in retrospect, we realize they probably should have retired earlier uh, before time caught up too much with them. But what a blessing it is to know when to call it a day, when to call it a career. But that isn't only a principle that applies to sports. Uh, To the contrary, we even see men in the Bible who give these very memorable, kind of signature speeches, uh, farewell speeches, as they were completing the work that the Lord had given to them. Uh, We see Moses in Deuteronomy doing this. Uh, There we find Moses' final charge to the Israelites, a charge which urged them to obey the Lord and to remain faithful to the Lord. Uh, Chapter 31 begins... uh, Uh, this way. It says, So Moses went and spoke all these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. That's from Deuteronomy 31 verses 1 to 3. That was a a famous speech. He realizes that he can no longer press on, that somebody's going to have to carry the baton that he'll be passing to them, and that would be Joshua. Uh, We see Paul doing the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, Toward the end of the book of Acts, Paul knows that as he's passing through the city of Ephesus, where he has been actively uh, participating in their ministry for so many years, he knows it's his last time. And so he gathers the elders of the Ephesian church together and gives them a final charge to beware of wolves, to beware of those who would enter into the fellowship uh, for the sake of power, for the sake of who knows what, promoting an ideology that was different and contrary to the gospel. He knew that wolves would sneak in. And so the elders of the church at Ephesus needed to be on the alert. They needed to be aware of this. And so he gives them this final charge to remain faithful to the Lord and to remain obedient to the Scriptures. Of course, we also see Jesus doing this, giving a, a, a very well-known signature uh, farewell. Uh, we call it the, the farewell discourse uh, that takes up several chapters in John. I think we spent over a year going through the farewell discourse as we went through the, uh, our study of John, but he preached that or, or spoke those words on the night prior to his Uh, his death on a cross, which was intended, the speech was intended uh, to guide them through all the years that would follow when they would no longer be in the physical presence of Jesus, and yet would have this mission to take the good news, to take the gospel to the nations where they would make disciples of the Gentiles. 
Now what's interesting is when you look at all these examples that you find throughout Scripture, you actually sort of see a pattern start to emerge, uh, you know, some, some common things, common elements throughout each one of these farewell speeches. They all include this kind of succinct summarization of their purpose, uh, of what they have accomplished in their ministry for God in their lifetimes. And they include a charge. They kind of close with a charge for those who were close to them to remain faithful to the Lord in their absence. Now as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, we'll see Samuel give a farewell speech to Israel that that follows along with this general pattern that we find throughout Scripture as he steps down from his public ministry as a, a judge of Israel to make way for the newly crowned king Saul. But because of Israel's apostasy, because they had backslidden, because they had exchanged God for a mortal king in this era of political idolatry, Samuel couldn't just say to them, hey, remain faithful, because they hadn't been there. That's not where they were. That's where they needed to be. And if they were there, he could have said, hey, stay stay where you are. Stay faithful. But that's not where they were. They needed to get to that point. So change was still needed. But Samuel had the wisdom, and I I would say the the spiritual maturity, to realize that it just wasn't going to happen under his leadership over Israel as judge and prophet. So instead, what he does in this chapter is he issues a call for them to repent and to return to the Lord. And as we study what he says, it really gives us kind of a blueprint. It gives us an understanding of how a person who has lost some ground in their walk, uh, somebody who is backslidden, can come back to the Lord starting right where they are. So the point of our message today, uh, the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is simply this. When we wander astray from God, Christ is our mediator who continues to pray for us, and God has given us in Him a way back to God. Friends, your eternal destiny is determined in this life by whether you have faith in the Lord or by whether you remain rebellious toward Him. So we have to see our lifetimes. We, we have to see our life as our time of preparation, a time to prepare for eternity by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus and by walking with Him. And when we fall down, we have to get back up. In order to call for Israel to return to God, Samuel begins by establishing his credibility, his integrity, which, by the way, is a good reminder for us that if we want to call somebody to repent, we ourselves had better make sure that we are walking with integrity with the Lord ourselves first. Uh, we all know how, uh, how people love to read a worldly slogan or love to read a worldly ideology into the Scriptures uh, like they do with Jesus when He says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And people love to just stop right there. Okay, Jesus said, Judge not. We'll just, we'll just mark out all the rest and forget all the rest. Never mind the fact that what they're overlooking, whether intentionally or not, is that the brother who has to remove the plank from his eye in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 7 actually does help the brother who has the splinter in his eye. What needed to change? The brother who wanted to help the brother with the splinter 
needed to first clear his name. He needed to repent of his own sin and make sure that he was walking with integrity before the Lord and not be hypocritical as he judges. So it's not that we're not supposed to judge, it's that we're not supposed to judge without ourselves having integrity to stand on. So we're not to judge hypocritically. And this is how Samuel begins our 12th chapter of 1 Samuel. This is how he begins his farewell speech. Let's look at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. It says, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Now, looking back on Israel's history, we realize that at this point in their history, they had had several generations of absolutely terrible, terrible leadership over them. Uh, Even the final judges were extremely worldly men. Uh, If you consider Samson, for example, and the apostasy that he experienced, albeit temporarily, uh, when he was lured away from the Lord by a beautiful Philistine woman named uh, Delilah, right? It was only in his final moments, in Samson's final moments, that Samson repented and returned to the Lord. But then there was Eli that we read about at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And Eli was uh, the the leader that came before Samuel. Uh, But Eli was this kind of slothful, lazy man. Every time we see him, he's sitting down. Uh, We read uh, toward the end of his life that he was extremely heavy. So he was a lazy man who allowed his unbelieving sons to serve as priests in the tabernacle. Uh, which, of course, aroused God's anger, God's wrath against uh, his sons. And given the generations of poor leadership in Israel, Samuel saw that it was necessary to remind the people, remind uh, Israel in his generation, that it could not be said of him that he was a poor leader. It could not be said of him that he was a failure as Israel's spiritual leader. That he couldn't, uh, that nobody could, could raise a charge of defrauding or stealing or manipulating against Samuel. Now keep in mind that he's dealing with a people who probably had very cynical, jaded minds toward their leaders. And we could say, with good reason, because of the leaders who had ruled over Israel in recent generations. But that's what most of uh, the, the leaders that Israel had known for a couple hundred years deserved. They deserved those cynical minds. They deserved those jaded attitudes that the people had. But it's not what Samuel deserved. Because Samuel didn't rule over them. He didn't lead them the way that the others had. 
So he begins by reminding the people that he had served them patiently and was driven by a loving, heartfelt desire to keep them close to God. He reminds them that he didn't just stubbornly turn them away when they desired to have a mortal king set in place over them like the other nations. Instead of insisting on his own way, Samuel actually did his best and, and, and maneuvered the situation very wisely, doing his best to accommodate their request while also remaining in a position where he could influence them to repent and return to the Lord. How easy it would have been to just outrightly deny their request and to shut the door on them and to kind of sever the relationship so that there would be nobody to call them to repent. Samuel endured the request for a mortal king, even though it was an insult. It was an insult to him, but above all, it was an insult to God. And that's what he reminds them of here in verse 1, that he set a king over them just as they had requested. In verses 2 and 3, he reminds them that he remained faithful to the Lord throughout all the years of his service uh, under them, over them. Uh, he gives them an opportunity to bring a charge against him, to, to disprove his claim of faithful service, challenging them, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? I'll restore it to you. Now, of course, the answer is that he hasn't done any of these things to anyone. Nevertheless, He's wise, and as a wise man with a flesh nature, maybe he realizes that it's at least possible that he had unknowingly and unintentionally wronged someone at some point, and he was willing to make restitution if that was the case. The other possibility, the other reason he might have said this is because he realizes that uh, the people are fallen, and sometimes people have a perception that is wrong. And so if anybody has this perception that he had wronged them, he wants to make it right. This is wise. This is, this is godly, uh, godly counsel from him, godly example from him. But this is a legal opportunity for anyone to make their case against him, to bear witness. Notice how many times we see that word witness in this part of the text against him. And all that the people can do, all that the people can, can say in response to this invitation to bring a charge against him or to, to witness against him, all they can say is, you have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. They, they acknowledge that he has served the Lord with integrity over them. So Samuel closes this portion of the text by forcing the conclusion of their confession of his innocence by demanding that they certify his innocence, validate his innocence and his faithfulness as a leader. Uh, that's what he's doing when he says, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed, that would be uh, King Saul, is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. So with God as my witness and with the king as my witness, and they say in response, he is witness. In other words, affirming. It's, it's validated. It's verified. You have done nothing wrong. So that is his official record as their leader. Before Samuel can call the people to repent, it was necessary for his integrity, his, his credibility 
to be established. As a prophet, as a judge, as, as a man of God in general, it needed to be established. Uh, John Woodhouse notes in his commentary, he says, quote, The vindication of Samuel meant the indictment of the people. End quote. In other words, the responsibility for their unfaithfulness now rested entirely on Israel's shoulders, not on Samuel's. Nobody could say, we're crooked because of the way that Samuel led. No, it is entirely now on their shoulders. But as we consider this, as we consider that Samuel was a man of integrity, we have to consider what a God-given gift Samuel was to Israel. He was exactly what Israel needed. And what Israel needed, God provided in Samuel. And yet, not just, not just him in general, but the fact that he was a man of integrity. A man who walked in God's ways. A man who practiced holiness in leading them. Friends, the most important gift that you can give to anyone is your own personal holiness. For you to walk in the Lord's ways before them, that they may see that you haven't led them astray, that you haven't done anything to cause them to doubt or to deny Christ. Think about that for a moment. The most important gift you can give someone is your own holiness. The most important gift that you can give somebody is walking in obedience to the Lord for all to see. John Owen said that, quote, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out of the gospel in our souls. We should live out the gospel. It should have massive, transforming implications for our lives if we truly believe it. Think of it this way. A father can give his children incredible wealth. He can give his children every social privilege imaginable. He can give his kids the best education in the world. He can give his kids a a safe financial future. He can create businesses for them to operate when he's gone. He can even give them the gospel. But if he doesn't live before his children as a man of integrity... If they don't see him being a man who strives for personal holiness, if they don't see that the Scriptures, that the Gospel, shape his thinking, shape his actions, they will notice that his words and that his life send two totally different messages. The question is, do you really want to risk that with your kids? How will it affect their perception of your words if your words and your life are sending two different messages. Listen, dads, I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. Uh, you're not, by the way. Just ask your kids or, or ask your wives. No, what I'm, what I'm saying is that you should see yourself both as the chief of sinners in your household and as the chief of repenters in your household. Your kids are going to see your imperfections. You know that, right? In fact, they're going to see them better than almost anybody. You know that, right? Your kids are going to see. So make sure that they get to see what it looks like when you realize 
that you have sinned. Model repentance for them. Model forgiveness for them. Model personal holiness for them. So that when you share the Gospel with them, they can see that your life and your lips are sending the same message. That is the greatest gift that one person can give another. Don't you want people to be encouraged and strengthened by seeing the gospel at work in your life? Don't you want the unregenerate to say, there's something so different about that person that I wish I had? Now, we all have weaknesses. Every single one of us has weaknesses. I mean, you zoom in closely enough and that's all you'll see. You'll just see an abundance of failures in somebody's life. But our faith, our willingness to take correction and to grow, to repent, should be an example for others to see. Hebrews 13.7 says this. It says, Remember those who led you. That's pretty general. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. How comfortable are you with somebody imitating your faith? Now, if you're uncomfortable with that, what needs to change? What do you need to do differently? You see why it's important that we have that we be a people who have credibility. It's because people we lead, whether we're leading them to Christ, whether we're leading them in the workplace, whether we're leading them in the home, they should be able to imitate the faith of those who lead them. And trust me, by the way, I feel the weight of that verse. Uh, do you? Do you feel the weight of that verse? You should. Because our credibility matters a lot. Our purpose as God's people is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, right? We, we know that, we love that, we say that, and we glorify Him by walking in obedience to His commands. And what's the command? What's the mission, the charge that He has given to His church? That we would therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. That's what we find in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. So we have a mission. We have people that we should be leading to Christ. People that we should be discipling. Friends, family members, kids. But our message not only needs to be proclaimed with our lips, it also needs to be lived out. If it's not being lived out, the result is it comes across as being either powerless or hypocritical. Neither one of those is good. So live it out. Live it out in front of people. As Jesus says, Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So having established this credibility, before the people, his own innocence, the, the faithfulness that he has exhibited throughout the course of his life in leading Israel, Samuel now turns the spotlight away from himself. And he'll shine it on Israel's past as a means of reminding the people of Israel that they actually had every reason in the world to remain faithful unto God because God had always, always been faithful to them. 
Let's continue, verses 6 to 13. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now, take your stand, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which He did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubal, and Bedan, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around, so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash, the the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Samuel's own credibility, his own innocence, is just the preface. It's the backdrop for a lengthy word that Samuel wanted to speak to the people of Israel before he stepped down. And so now he reminds them that God has been faithful to them all along, dating all the way back to the earliest patriarchs. Their own forefathers had gone down to Egypt where they had been subject to generations of slavery, but the Lord was faithful to deliver them when they cried out. The people cried out, and He sent Moses and Aaron to guide them out of Egypt. But, Samuel continues, verse 9, and I have to imagine he says that but with a sigh of lament. But they forgot the Lord their God. This happens so easily, doesn't it? I mean, I I know that I can say that from my own personal experience. I think every Christian, if you've been a Christian more than five minutes, you can probably attest to the same thing, how easily it happens, how easily we can forget the Lord. Think of all the miracles that They had personally witnessed in the wilderness, and yet it was never, ever enough for them. The Lord provided everything that they needed in their years in the wilderness. But, oh, those those onions and those leeks back in Egypt. Slavery was a thing, whatever. The, The onions and the leeks. Don't you miss the onions and the leeks? And so they start thinking. Their hearts start longing to return to Egypt, and to be slaves again for the sake of onions and leeks. They're just like Christians who have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin and walk in new, unhindered fellowship with God, and yet there remains a part of their heart that loves the world and that misses some of the sins they used to commit, just like Lot's wife looking back on Sodom as it burned. 
Eventually, the unfaithfulness on behalf of the Israelites would result in God giving them over to their sins, giving them into the hand of Sisera, a captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Why were they given over into these kings' hands? Because they wanted to be like the world. Because they forgot about the Lord their God. Just as God gave the Israelites over to these kings, over to these oppressing kings who were their enemies as a means of bringing His people back to Himself. So too today, God will often break the hearts of His children by handing them over to those worldly things that they desire. Hebrews tells us that God disciplines every child He receives, every son He receives. So He'll, he'll give them riches He'll give them over to to wealth in order to show them the emptiness of riches. Or He'll give them a promotion at work as a means of showing them that their their desire, their lust for power and for influence is really just fleeting and fragile. One of the worst judgments God will cast upon a prideful man is popularity among men so that he may learn the way that it enslaves him to the opinions of those he's trying to impress and please so that he may see the foolishness of serving people rather than serving God. In Israel's case, God handed the Israelites over to their enemies as a means of putting within them a desire for a freedom that could only be achieved, that could only come by God's hand working to free them. And sure enough, as Samuel recalls here in verse 10, they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Which God did, by the way. He delivered them from the hands of their enemies by raising up and sending the judges to deliver His people from their oppression. But the people of Israel had done the same thing yet again recently. This pattern that we saw in judges where they're faithful, then they fall away, then God raises up a judge to deliver them, it carries all the way into the 12th chapter here of 1 Samuel. It doesn't end at the end of the book of Judges. It continues into the book of 1 Samuel. Chapter, uh, verse 12 reveals that it was the king Nahash, the Ammonite, the king that we saw last week, who was known for removing the right eye of those he conquered and taking them as slaves, who provoked Israel to apostasy and faithfulness. It was fear of man that led to them turning away from God. The threat of Nahash invading and taking the people as slaves is what caused them to demand that King, uh, that, that Samuel appoint a king. Uh, over them. The fear that Nahash instilled in them is what caused them to take their eyes off of the Lord, to stop trusting in Him, to reject Him as their sovereign king. And thus we must see that by appointing Saul as the king over Israel, as king over the people of Israel, God was once again disciplining them. By putting Saul over them, he had given the people of Israel over to their sin in order that the consequences of their sin would provoke them to return to the Lord in faithfulness in time. 
Now therefore, Samuel continues, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. As long as Saul would sit on Israel's throne, he would be a judgment. He would be a means of discipline against the Israelites because he would always be known as the guy who took God's place. And those are shoes that no mortal man could ever fill. And that's the point. Nobody can fill God's shoes. Nobody can do what God can do. Once again, though, to quote John Calvin, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Richard Phillips notes that, quote, whenever we turn aside to our own schemes and plans, which, by the way, is exactly what Israel has done, right? Whenever we turn aside to our own schemes and plans or to the world's schemes and plans as opposed to God's, we are heading for trouble. And that is exactly what Israel has done. If you want to know what's so wrong with seeker-friendly churches, there you have it in a nutshell. It involves conducting services that the unregenerate will find appealing. There's some terrible theology just behind that one statement. It's It's a worldly scheme. It's a worldly strategy. It's not God's scheme. It's not God's strategy. It is a worldly scheme and strategy. It's not what God instructs throughout Scripture. No, Scripture warns us against worshiping God in a way that God has not instructed. Same goes for the social justice cult that rose up around 2015-2016. You had people who were professing Christians, leading churches, who were preaching the exact same message that the world was preaching. Equity, not equality. And other such nonsense, emphasizing the importance of showing partiality to people who suddenly believed that they had been oppressed. By the way, let me just remind you that showing partiality is something that God never does. In fact, showing partiality is a sin that Scriptures warn us against repeatedly. And where were these church leaders getting this message? Not from the Scriptures. They were getting it from the world. They were, they were exchanging God's plans, God's word, God's um, uh, schemes for worldly schemes. Uh, it, it's the same with the newest cult of Christian nationalism. You know, they've resorted to worldly strategies and worldly ideologies as a means of making America a Christian nation. And their strategy for making America a Christian nation isn't to preach the gospel. Actually, if you tell them, let's start preaching the gospel, they'll say, oh, no, 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 that's not enough. Really? You're going to get a Christian nation by not preaching the gospel? You want to start someplace else? If you want a Christian nation, how do you get Christians? Not by just doing social things, by preaching the gospel. So they speak more about stuff like enacting laws that were only given to Israel in America, punishing those who break God's law, as if that's the church's responsibility, taking the authority that God has ordained for the government and merging it with the church. You guys have heard of the Salem witch trials, right? You know that the church has tried this kind of thing before and that it has always been a historic black eye for the church. And yet here we go again. All these movements are worldly movements. They are an explicit 
rejection of God. They are an explicit rejection of His decrees. And each of these movements is driven by a loss of confidence in God's ordering of things in His universe. And whenever we do that, whenever we lose confidence in God's ordering of things, we are headed for disaster. We are headed for absolute catastrophe because God's way is always, without exception, the best way. And rejecting His way always involves rejecting Him. It always involves distrust, disobedience, and backsliding. The sad thing about all these movements and and every other movement is that many of those who have been caught up in them, like Israel was, had every reason in the world to remain faithful to God. If they had looked back over the course of their lives, they would have seen His faithfulness to them. And, And suddenly many of them were just a million miles away from Him. Some left the faith entirely perhaps demonstrating that they had never been saved in the first place. We can still pray for their return. Maybe it's just backsliding. Maybe it's apostasy. Here's the problem. How do you know if it's apostasy or backsliding? Apostasy is permanently walking away. Backsliding is temporarily walking away. How do you know the difference? The only difference is the backslider comes back. An apostate stays away forever. And while they're away, there's no guarantee that they will come back. And that is a terrifying thought. Have you ever known somebody who's backslidden? Somebody whose faith maybe once burned strong, but over time they lost their way and they just ended up far away from God? Maybe that describes the journey that some of you have taken at some point in your walk. It certainly describes a point in my early walk. Maybe you'll be tempted in the future to backslide. How does a person find his way back to God when this happens? That's the question. What are we to do if, God forbid, if we should ever find ourselves backslidden, departed from God's ways, departed from confidence in God's Word? Samuel gives us the blueprint right here in the next couple verses that follow. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. I'd say let's just go ahead and glean all the the strength and all the encouragement that we possibly can from these verses because they they actually are overflowing with uh, with encouragement, things that should encourage us. Samuel's saying that even though these people have departed from faithfulness to God, even though they have sinned terribly against God, even though they have rejected Him as their King, desiring to replace him with the mortal man, if they and their king would simply humble themselves before the Lord, resolving anew to walk in faithfulness before the Lord their God, then God would be gracious to cleanse them of their sin, to forgive them of their sin, and to bless the steps of their path for them. What a promise. 
if they would just turn from these things, God says, I will let bygones be bygones and I will still love you and bless you and be with you and be for you. But what was the path? What's the path back to being in faithful fellowship with God? Look at the verbs that you see in verse 14. That's, that's one, whenever you see a cluster of verbs, if you're somebody who likes to write in your Bible, circle the verbs. Uh, fear the Lord. Serve Him. Listen to His voice. Do not rebel against His command. But, but notice where that all starts. It starts within. It starts with the fear of the Lord. Now, of course, we know the verse from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But let's not miss that Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 also says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, that's not something outward. That's something inward, right? If, you, if your kids hate broccoli, it's going to affect what they do outwardly, but it's inward, right? You, you can't just say, uh, you know, do, do, don't, don't hate it anymore. You know, just stop hating it. You can't tell somebody to just stop hating it. It has to start within. Something has to change within. And that's what Samuel's saying here. It has to start with the desires in your heart. It, it starts with where your heart is, what your heart desires, your affections, your aspirations. Fearing God starts within the heart and it works its way outward into our actions. That's what was so wrong with the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious leaders in Jesus' time, right? He says, you know, you you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. It's got to start with the heart. You can't fake fearing God. You can't fake hating evil. You, You either hate it or you love it. You either hate it or you don't. And which, is, which it is is going to be revealed by your deeds, but it starts within by what you're, what you're fearing. And if they feared God as they should have, they would do the things, the verbs that follow. Serving Him. Listening to His voice. And not rebelling against His command. If they and their king would do this, in spite of all their pursuit of worldliness and uh, being like the nations around them and forsaking God, God would forgive them anew and would continue to bless them. The same principle applies for us, by the way. It applies to us the same way. When we realize that we have backslidden, when we realize that we have lost confidence in God or that we are just far away from God, what do we do? We start right where we are. We humble ourselves first, we confess our sin, we forsake our sin, we turn from it, but we must look within ourselves to figure out what went wrong, to correct our hearts before we look to correct our actions. We figure out, uh, we've got to figure out first, what have we set our heart on that caused us to become far from the Lord? And whatever that is, whatever it was that caused us to be far from God, what do we do with that thing? We bring it right back to the cross. And we lay it upon Christ. We forsake it. And we renew our commitment to walk in faithfulness before the Lord. Now listen, you might only have to do that once. You might have to do that 5,000 times. 
Let me ask you this. You guys know the, pro- the story of the prodigal son, don't you? Let's say that the story of the prodigal son didn't end where it did. Let's say that the story actually goes something like this. He did it three times. Let's say he did it 30 times. Let's say he did it 500 times. At what point would God have said, no more? There isn't one. Every single time, he would have received his son back with open arms. The same principle applies for us, applies to us. We nail whatever it is to the cross again. And we renew our commitment to walk in faithfulness before the Lord. Octavius Winslow was a great theologian. If you can ever find any of his books, he wrote some hymns, but if you can ever find any of his books, his books are excellent. He wrote a book on recovering from backsliding in which he wrote this. He said, quote, Love to God, or love of God, is a tender flower. It is a sensitive plant, soon and easily crushed. Perpetual vigilance is needed to preserve it in a healthy, growing state. End quote. If you have a tender flower, if you're a gardener, if you know anything about gardening, if you have a tender flower, and a lot of flowers are really tender, you have to attend to it. You have to take care of it. You have to give it what it needs. It needs water. It needs soil with plenty of nutrients. It needs plenty of sunlight. But you also have to protect it. You you have to put it in a safe place where it can't be trampled or eaten by pests and, and animals. Should this flower of love for God ever be trampled in your heart, friends? God is assuring us here that it will grow back and that if we will just give it what it needs once again, He will bless it and cause it to grow anew. What does it need? The first thing it needs, the flower of our love for God, the first thing it needs is fear of the Lord. Repentance, faith, and a renewed commitment to obedience, even if it's the 5,000th time you've had to do it. But the Israelites here are at a crossroads. They, they had a choice to make. They, they, could, they could choose to do the things that Samuel has laid out. That's the first option. The only alternative is what he says in verse 15. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Things aren't going to change unless you choose wisely. To validate the fact that he actually had the authority to speak for God here and to make these promises, Samuel next performs a miracle. Let's look at verses 16 to 18. He says, Even now, Take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it, not wheat, is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So the people realize that Samuel does have the authority to say this, to make this promise. These words are spoken during the wheat harvest, which was a time of year in which rain was rare. 
It was pretty sparse. Uh, if it did rain, it, it was probably more like Seattle drizzle uh, than hard rain. But the proof that God would receive them and bless their repentance or that he would curse their resistance and their rebellion and their refusal would be validated by Samuel calling out to God to send this fierce thunderstorm and rainstorm. And just as he said, when he called out to God, God sends a powerful storm which resulted in the people fearing the Lord and Samuel, for better or for worse. And this brings us to the conclusion of our passage. Let's look at verses 19 to 25. It says, Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. The people, in response to the miracle that Samuel performed in calling upon the Lord to send this storm, they realize that this is serious business. And as they realize that they have sinned against God and need to change, suddenly they realize that they are not worthy of going before God themselves, that they need a mediator to intercede on their behalf with God. And they finally come to the point where where they're now ready to confess their sin against God. They're able to see how far away they are from God, how, how far they have backslidden, and they refer to God as your God to Samuel, recognizing that they haven't been serving him, but Samuel has been, which is A terrifying thing to realize, and yet it's a wonderful place to be at the same time. It's where they need to be if they're going to repent and return to the Lord. So Samuel responds to the people in a way that models for us how we should respond for our unbelieving friends and family members and and so on and so forth when they ask us to pray for them. And that will inevitably happen at some point. They'll realize their need, their personal need for God's help, they'll realize that they are in no position themselves to pray to God, to go before Him, and so they will ask you to do it for them. And what does Samuel say? I love his response. It's, it's so gracious. He says to them, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Listen, friends, this is, a, this is a great way for us to respond to an unbelieving friend who asks us to intercede for them in prayer. What do we say? We say, of course, of course I will pray for you. But I also want you to know how you can get yourself into a position where you can go to God in prayer yourself. 
And where do we go from there? To the gospel. Because that's how a person is brought into right fellowship with God, by believing the gospel. So look how Samuel reminds these, these backslidden Israelites of God's gracious willingness to, to bless them. He says in verse 20, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. So at that point, we remind people who ask us to pray for them, we remind them that Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for any sin, for all of their sin, and we remind them that this this door is opened by faith in Christ. The door for them to receive God's abiding love and kindness is found by believing in Jesus. Because there's no other way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So the way to open that door to God's blessings is through faith in Christ. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. And the same can be said of us today. So likewise, you must know that God will honor all the promises that He has made in Christ. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who hear Jesus' words and believe Him who sent Jesus has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John 5.24, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can God make those promises? Yes, He can. And yes, He does. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ because God is faithful to His covenant promises. Samuel says, Consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Likewise, consider how gracious, how kind God has been that He didn't sweep you away before you had a chance to hear the gospel and to believe. Consider His kindness in ordering all things that you may see your need for a Savior. That you may see that you are far away from God. That you may see that there is a way to God. That you may see that Christ is that way. And that you would believe in His glorious gospel. Ultimately, we must see the truth in Paul's words when he wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, where he says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. It's a good place to be where you realize you need a mediator. Unlike Samuel, whose time was limited because he was going to grow old, Uh, His hair was growing gray. He he was eventually going to die. Unlike Samuel, Jesus was resurrected from death. And now He has an eternal priesthood at the right hand of God the Father. The the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, that Jesus holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able... Listen to that. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives 
to make intercession for them. If Samuel is a foreshadowing of Christ, and he is, and if Samuel wouldn't cease to pray for Israel, and if Samuel is pointing us to Christ, who is the true and greater Samuel, how much more can we rest assured that Christ will never, never stop praying for us if we are his people? And if that is so, if Jesus is praying for us, let me ask you this. What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to not be joyful about? Do you believe that God orders all things so that you'll grow in Christ's likeness? Do you believe that Jesus is praying for you? He's actually praying for you right now as you receive his word? That you'll receive it? That you'll be nourished by it? That you'll grow in Christ's likeness? Do you know that he's praying for you by name right now before the Father? And if he's doing that, why do we worry Why do we stress? Why do we despair? This gives us a confidence that shatters every fear, that silences every grief. Jesus himself prays for me. And if Jesus is praying for me, he's praying for his will. His will is one with the Father's. And so if he's praying for me, it's going to be done. So what do I worry about? Why do I stress? Why do I have anxiety about anything, right? When we wander astray from God, Christ, our mediator, doesn't stop interceding for us. And God has ordained a way for us to come back to Him, starting right where we are. Friends, keep your heart close to God. Guard your love for Christ, for God. Care for it. Protect it. Tend to it daily. And and if you need to to rekindle your love for God, if you need to, to renew your devotion toward Him, remember that there's nothing that anyone has done that is impossible for Him to forgive, to cleanse you of. And don't just remind your friends of that. Do remind your friends, but don't just remind them. Remind your own heart of that truth often that your heart may remain close to the Lord in order that you may, as Samuel said, fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. Not because doing that, not because serving Him in truth with all your heart will save you. It won't. We're not saved by that. But we better know that we're saved for that. To the praise of of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this portion of Your Word, this text that we've considered today that really reveals Your your kindness, your, Your loving kindness, Your grace to Your people when we wander astray. Oh Lord, as the song goes, we are so prone to wander. And every one of us can testify to that. It's only your grace that keeps us. We thank you that we are saved not because of the strength of our faith, but by the strength of your hand 
that holds us. We pray, Lord, for friends and family members that we may know who have backslidden, who maybe once professed faith in You and yet as we consider their lives and look at their lives, now they are really no different than the world. We pray for You to bring them back to Yourself. We pray that You would fill them with with repentance and with grief and sorrow that leads to repentance in order that they may drink from the wells of Your salvation, the wells of Your grace once again. And Lord, we pray that You, by the power of Your Spirit working within us, would teach us to guard the tender flower of our love for You. Teach us to protect it, to nourish it, to feed it, that it may grow, and that our faith may be evident to the world around us. That our faith would not be something that we're even able to keep to ourselves, but that it would be something that transforms our lives all by the power of Your Spirit working within us. Give us a stronger faith. Give us a greater faith. Give us greater love and devotion for Christ. Kindle our hearts anew for Him, that He may be glorified in our lives, and that we may do good works before men in order that they may glorify You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.